I'm Susie Thorpe. I am a huge supporter of the Columbia Museum of Art and the arts in general. It has been my gift to be able to attend chamber music on Maine. I really am not one of these people who can tell you the K number of every Mozart piece, but I just love how that music makes me feel. These composers know how to touch all our emotions. They can make you feel happy or sad or laugh. Andy Armstrong is one of the most empathetic musicians I've ever met. Now, I've met a lot, but his ability in a few sentences when he's telling the audience the bio or how he knows a particular artist. I'm sort of reminded of the second movement of Bartok Contrasts which um, is some of the creepiest music I've ever heard in my life. And you listen to it and you, your blood just stops in your veins and then you look at the title and Bartok has named it Relaxation. He talks about music with passion, with pride, with knowledge. He's intelligent, but he conveys all this tremendous information in a way you can get your head around. And you always leave feeling like you've learned something. The one thing about the chamber here is it is building its own community and over the years you see many of the same people and you just have this shared experience that's very important to me when i was growing up my dad always emphasized that we all had uh, responsibility to give something to our community and it's been my joy to be able to do it through the art museum and the arts in general I'm Joelle Ryan Cook. So I'm here today with Andrew Armstrong, who is a great friend of this museum. He is the creative director of our Chamber on Main music series and an incredible pianist and a wonderful friend. Welcome, Andy. It's great to have you. Thanks, Joelle. I'm so happy to be with you on the podcast. So I want to do something a little light at first. I want to talk about perks real quick. Two kinds of perks. One is coffee. I've had so much coffee today. <laughs> I know producer Drew has had so much coffee today because he and I are aligned on this. You had to get up early and come from Beaufort to be here. Are you a coffee drinker? So I had four different shots of espresso and then uh, I had a, a meeting back in Beaufort and was offered uh, just a freshly made French press coffee and you can't turn that down. So I'm I'm juiced. So I had a feeling that we were all going to be in the same space on that. So let's talk about work perks. What is a favorite work perk for you? 
my greatest work perk is just the power of the human connections that come from putting together chamber music series uh, with community members, audience members, other musicians who've become dear friends. Ever since I was a little kid, genuine, warm, authentic human connection has been my drug of choice. And uh, I just can't get enough of it. Leonard Bernstein said this really well in one of his concerts for young people. He said, classical music is the most powerful language and it's also the least specific. So when you play a piece of music for someone, you, you know, you can't play a piece of music that tells them, please go fetch the red kettle off the third shelf in the kitchen. And yet the messages that one receives are so powerful. I just thank my lucky stars every day that I, I just fell into, and by fall into, I mean, worked my butt off forever on getting into a, a job that just constantly gives me that, that one thing, which is my huge dopamine hit in life, which is that human connection. Which is, I think, probably what drives many of us to work in the arts in the first place, yeah, right? Yeah. So my head was in the same space. I was very excited to be able to sit here with you today and to think about how we want to tell this story around an art museum that also has a classical music series and has many other kinds of forms of art. And I think really what it is, it's that connection between the creator and the performer and the artist and then an audience receiving that and bringing in what we as humans are bringing to the table when we experience something and that we are just lucky to be able to work in a space where that's part of what we do. That work perk is what's the connections that we have made between people and art forms and conversations and storytelling. It sounds like for you, young, that hit you young. Yeah. And I don't know the young Andy story. How did you get into classical music? Oh, it's really embarrassing. Um, oh, great. That's it always like a good story, stories? right? Talk about human connections. At seven, I started taking piano lessons because my older sister, Jane, who is two years older than I, she still is two years older than I. Um, she keeps doing that every year. Uh, <laughs> She took lessons, and so I was envious, and so I took lessons, but I didn't really quite get it. I just sort of took the lessons, and I didn't practice as much as my parents wanted me to practice. And then one summer, uh, when I was 12 years old, I went away to summer camp. It was a six-night sleep-away summer camp away from home. And of course, in that type of setting, I had my first crush on a girl. She never knew the crush I had on her, but last night of camp there was a square dance and I made sure I was dancing really near her so when it was time to do -si do I got to lock arms with her and uh, every cell in my body exploded into the ether it's incredible the whole next year I had a homemade calendar crossing off the days till I would get to see her at camp again but she didn't have the same crush on me and I never saw her again that same next summer when I was still pining my grandfather made a cassette tape, a dub of Arthur Rubinstein playing Chopin. And my dad put it on in the car while he was driving us and my heart just jumped out of my chest. I, I felt feelings more powerful than I ever knew I could feel. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, Frederick Chopin knew this girl from summer camp. He described her <laughs> he perfectly. <did. laughs> and uh, 
it just it just felt it, it was it was the first language that I'd ever heard that was resonant with what I had experienced with that particular type of human connection, which is kind of so iconic for so many of us in our youths, that first crush, you know. And I remember thinking for the rest of my life, I was 12 then, I said, if, if I could make one person feel when I play the piano, the way Arthur Rubinstein makes me feel when he plays this piece of music, I'll consider it a life well lived. That's all, that's all I want to do. So then my parents helped me find a, a teacher in New York City who would be up to the challenge of training a kid who was way behind, you know. By the time we found her, I was 14 years old and I should have already been playing concertos with orchestras and, you know, to make it as a professional, I was way behind. But I gave her my sob story that I had to do this and I had no choice and she worked really hard with me. And next thing I went from practicing 20 minutes a day to six hours a day, nine hours a day, taking a half day of school so I could just play the piano all day. It was just a sickness that uh, never left. It's a story of passion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that teacher must have recognized in you that that passion was going to come to fruition at some point. So to be the 14-year-old who says, all right, I'm going to do everything I can to catch up, that's pretty amazing. And that's, I mean, the story of the arts in a lot of ways is passion, right? So talk to me about what it was like to be the player, the performer, and the having to get to that space where you practice so much that you can't get it wrong anymore, right? You know, that you're practicing so much. So talk about that's got to be the first phase of a classical career, I would think. Yeah, that's right. Uh, My teacher used to say, if you prepare a piece to 95%, you'll go on stage and play it at 75% because there's always adrenaline and there's nervousness. So you have to prepare it to 125% so that, you know, people could be throwing rotten eggs at you and you're not missing anything. And uh, she had great advice. She said, if you can live without a career in classical music, please do. And she said this to all her students because she said that you don't need to do the world any favors and they're not going to just throw the red carpet at your feet. You know, you're going to have to work so hard for it and you're going to resent it unless you can look yourself in the mirror and say, no, no, I asked myself this question and the answer was I couldn't live without it. Right. So none of this has been a mistake. You know, I remember being in my 30s and trying to get to a, a concert. They were going to pay me $300. And I was out of, almost out of gas and I maxed out on my credit cards. And all right, you know what? I have enough quarters in my car for the meter that I can get just enough gas to get to this concert to play. And my friends were buying their first homes and having children. And I remember thinking, God, have you, have you messed it all up? Have you failed? But the fact that she had this great advice, this question she forced me to answer, could you live without it? It helped me, you know, 15 years later when everything's, you know, nothing's quite clicking for me. I said, yeah, but I didn't make a mistake because I answered the question that I can't live without it. So how did I make a mistake when there was no other choice? This is, this is the path. Right. And it really helped me power through moments of darkness when it would be easy to press the eject button and say, I'm going to do something else because I messed up, you know. So what were your favorite moments early in your career or favorite trips or cities that you've gone to as a performer? Well, when I was still a student, I got some incredible opportunities to play in Moscow and Shanghai and just experience different cultures and start to understand my own home culture in a better way by knowing the differences in different cultures. You know, I remember walking the halls of the Moscow Conservatory. We had a 10-day program where American students went to get master classes. And I remember walking down the hall and smiling and saying hello to strangers in the hall. And 
getting these looks back at me, like straight face, no smile. I thought, well, they're, they're not very friendly here in Moscow. And then I made friends with specific people that I was working with there, and they were some of the warmest human beings I'd ever gotten to have friendships with in my life. And they explained to me that it's just, you know, culturally, it just feels different. It's, it seems insincere if you're smiling at a stranger. Well, what are you smiling about? You don't know each other yet. You're not on the inner circle. Music became a great gateway for me to learn how different all sorts of different cultures can be. I'm, you know, in, in the U.S., audiences are generally quite polite. And, you know, they want to they root you on. And our audiences, we're, we're, we're good about applauding and saying nice things. And if you, if you don't love a concert, you just sort of go home and say, I'm not going to berate that person. But I remember playing Chopin in Warsaw, and one person in the receiving line is crying and telling me, it's the most beautiful Chopin I've ever heard in my life. And the very next person in the line says, you have no business playing Chopin. You don't understand the language. You don't understand his music. And I remember just loving that passion. I, I wanted to hug that audience member because it was fun to taste for a moment the idea that this stuff is so scandalous that it, you could really offend someone that, that you didn't use the right rubato. The, 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 the freedom of your timing in Chopin wasn't authentic in the way that they would want the freedom of the timing to be done. And I, just, I loved that. It's that investment that they have in what you're doing. I've always said here at the museum, if you and I went to an exhibition and you didn't like it and I loved it, but we talked about it at lunch for a really long time, then somehow we've done our job, right? We've done some Perfectly sort of, said. you know, sparking that curiosity in terms of conversation and discussion and debate. And the arts are so good at that dis place where you can debate something, yeah. you know, because yeah. there's no right answer That's to right. it. You That's know, right. it's not mathematics in that way. And I, I love that. That leads me to that place where a big part of your career now is being a creative wow. director. Well, it seems kind of surreal to say that this is our last piece of this season. It feels like the season's beginning almost. Um, but here we are. I was thinking um, during the intermission, what would be a harder season to program? A, a, a season with no Mozart and Beethoven or a season with no Brahms and Dvorak? I think either one of them is horrible to even think about, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's one of those would-you-rather games where you just want to say neither, neither of these things, please. Um, we'll play this uh, quartet for you now by Dvorak, his E-flat, his second. So talk to me about that track of your career, moving into that curator space, that director space. It's been a life changer for me, Joel. This was the first place to give me a chance to try it. And something in me, I mean, I knew before we started, I just, I, I, I felt immediately, that's what I was meant to do. I think of myself primarily as a matchmaker. So bringing my favorite musicians together with my favorite audiences and saying, I know you guys are going to love each other. And I just get to stand back and watch that meeting happen. That's incredible to me. And in a similar way, you know, my, my passion for music in the abstract, music as a art form, there's that matchmaker element there too, where 
I take very seriously and enthusiastically my role of matchmaking great chamber music and the city of Columbia. And constantly bringing in new audience members. Um, our audience members are really good at you know, taking their friends by the collar and dragging them right. to our concerts and saying, listen, you think you might not like this, but just give it one shot. And it, it's such a thrill to me to see someone come up to me afterward and say, I was convinced I was going to hate it. And now I'm a lifer. This is, this is just so exciting to me. That's matchmaker Andy is as happy as he can be when that happens. So this job just fits for me. So this is very specifically chamber music. Sometimes you're playing solo. Sometimes it's you and a couple of other players. We tend to not get bigger than five to six in mm -hmm. this environment. I think chamber music is kind of defined heading up toward, what, 12, 15 at the most. Yeah, sounds about right. Talk to me about chamber music as a form. Okay, let's say you've got four people playing together in a group, and each of the four players has a distinct part. They each play their own special part, and they go together to make a great piece of music. It goes without saying with, with the classics that the instruments are going to have to share musical themes, you know, a melody. First one, maybe the violin plays the melody and then the cellist is going to play it, you know, 12 bars later. Or maybe the cellist has to accompany the violinist on how they play that melody and the subjective way that each player interprets that melody and the way that they want to shape the phrase. It's highly personal and people become highly passionate about how they feel it should go. So when you think about what rehearsing and performing is like, you live or die by your ability to really respectfully and lovingly hear your colleague's point of view mm -hmm. and put on the phrase of music like borrowed clothing the way they want it to be, actually giving your whole heart behind their way of wanting to do it. That, that's how a great chamber music performance can happen, is if you have generous, open-minded colleagues who say, you know what, I already know the way I was passionate to play this part. That's already in me. But you're inviting me now to hear it in your way. That's only going to add to my personality. That's only going to become a new gift to me. So I'm going to do that, and I'm going to throw myself into that with all my heart and soul. And I think chamber music is just a great example of how we're all lifted up by our ability to embrace the other's point of view. So what we're really talking about is listening, listening to each other, listening to conversations, listening through the arts. And so it's a storytelling, right? So the music yeah is telling a story. It's not using words like a novel or a poem, but it is telling a story. And in order to hear that, we have to slow down enough and we have to listen for a moment. And I think within the arts, that's part of what we're talking about pretty regularly is how do we have more complex conversations? How do we listen to each other and go, I hadn't thought about that. I hadn't experienced that, but now through you, I am learning. So when you're creating the program, what are those ingredients that you're considering to create what that hour and 30 minutes of music is going to be? 
do you think of it as I'm trying to tell a story here tonight? That's is a very complex answer to that, which I'll just give the broadest of brush strokes about. But in a way, it's a jazz performance that mm-hmm. um, the putting together of the program because I'm I'm responding to which artists were free on that date to perform and what are their strengths and what are their passions. I have a friend, one of my favorite cellists in the world, and I suggested a certain really, really deep Beethoven sonata. I asked her to play. It was when COVID lockdown was really onerous and you know everybody was stuck in their spaces. And she said, please don't make me play that piece right now. She said, I just, I don't want to play that piece right now. I'm not, I'm not in that headspace. It's just too hard to go there right now. I want something happy and light and uplifting. And I was so grateful to her that she shared that with me. So this artist feedback helps to shape our programs. I learn from them things that they, they've been excited to play. And then the other real element for me, and I, I guess I talk about food too much in my life, but I, I try to make a menu. So I like to have complementary pieces of music that follow one well after the other because of contrast, because of similarities. But I don't like to make a theme where, you know, hey, everybody, we're going to have an entire concert of elegies. Everything you hear tonight is going to be an elegy. No, thank you. I'm not buying a ticket to that. I, well, why would I ever do that to myself? The ancient Greeks said that the whole universe is composed of two big wheels. One wheel is same and the other wheel is different. And if you think about any work of art, there's that composition of same and different. And how do you pull them together? And so that's what I strive for in the programs. I want certain complementarily similar aspects of pieces to delight our audience, but I definitely want contrast to be the spice of life. Well, and I, one of the things I very much appreciate about your program is that you like to stretch the audience as well. So you want to introduce things that they may not have heard before or to challenge the audience to also go, look, I want you to consider this late 20th century piece or this 21st century piece. So talk to me about the mix of something that we may adore from Brahms, but that we need to hear from a living composer as well. Yeah, there's much to be said about that. And if you want to try a new morsel of food that you've never had, you could try one bite. And if you don't like it, you've learned you don't like it and you're out. You know, one day I really, I dream of programming Messiaen's Quartet for the End of Time here. I remember the first time I ever played it. I just excused myself from the reception and I just went to a room all by myself and I just sat there in silence with, with tears in my eyes. It just, it's one of the great experiences you could ever have in music, but it's also very crunchy and a lot of the sounds are not comfortable to uh, listeners that aren't ready for it, used to it. And so, so different from food, right? If, if I program that, I've got to get the buy-in from the audience. For 40 minutes, you're going to confront a piece of music that some of you are going to love and some of you are going to resent. Right. And uh, you, you've got to have that type of buy-in that, that says, you know what? It's worth wrestling with something new and we're going we're gonna to go for that. But it is always a tricky challenge to pick your spots and to, and to help the audience be ready to really enjoy what's, what's coming when you're trying to challenge them with something new. And I think we're lucky to work in the arts in the sense that Generally, we're working with a community of learners, people who are incredibly curious and want to know more. So I think our conversation today, you're helping to 
lift up the veil of something that seems so kind of perfect when you sit in the space, right? Yeah. Uh, you've already thought through all of these incredible details. And I think we've done that when we put exhibitions up. Mm -hmm, They're mm -hmm. supposed to be very finished looking, mm -hmm, but it mm -hmm. takes an incredible amount of collaboration and frustration and practice and experimentation to kind of get to that space. So let's kind of close out our conversation with what I think this has all been leading to and that I think you and I have felt together over the years is how are you creating community through this chamber series? How are you creating community here in Columbia? Mm. And how are you creating community amongst your players even? Mm. I think that people that come to our concerts for the first time can tell how grateful I am that they are there and that if you want to be present with us, you're part of our family instantly. You're, you're part of the team instantly. Just, just by wanting to be there, just by being open to listening and engaging in the moment. I like to tell a few jokes and I like to be relaxed with the audience. I never prepare my remarks. I'm always off the cuff. I want them to feel the genuineness of the moment and the genuineness of the message that we have that it's not scripted. We're not walking some narrow line of what, what we feel is going to be acceptable. We're just sharing our hearts in all their authenticity with all the foibles. I tell, sometimes I tell a pun that makes the whole audience groan. And luckily, uh, I don't have many talents in this, in this world, but the one, one talent I really do have is that I love an awkward moment on stage. I think it's my favorite moment when, when it's, the more awkward it is, the, the more I enjoy it. I was in Charleston uh, last week and somebody's cell phone went off in between movements. So we had just finished this really exciting, happy scherzo. And that now we're just about to play a really serious next movement, a slow movement that's very somber. And someone's cell phone goes off right in the middle. It wasn't planned. It, just had, it was someone in the audience. And just sort of instinctively, I stood up and pulled a fake invisible phone out of my pocket and I answered it. And I held my hand up to my ears like, you know, like you do pantomiming a telephone. And I gesticulated and furrowed my brow and talked to somebody for, you know, all of eight seconds, which feels like 20 seconds on right. stage, and put it back in my pocket. And it just happened spontaneously. But I can tell you the overall place where that came from in, in my heart is that I'm always hoping our audience members understand that we are not up on a pedestal being viewed. It is a two-way street, and we see our audience, we hear our audience, and we love our audience. We feed off of the energy from the people that are there. And so kind of answering the phone was sort of saying, number one, you're performing for us too. We hear you. We, we mm -hmm. see you. And number two, we embrace you. I feel like if I had just furrowed my brow and stayed silent and waited for the next movement, it would just reinforce for the audience this idea that, okay, we're supposed to behave over here and just not bug them and let them perform and, you know, they tolerate us being out here. And uh, when the concert's over, then the concert will be over and then we'll applaud. And, I, that, you know, I, I wouldn't want that hovering over the audience after that cell phone ring. I just feel like we puncture the bubble. We, we have a little laugh about it. We say, hey, that happened. And ha ha. And we're all human. We're all friends here. What's next? And, and for me, that's the way that you talk about community building. That's, that's how you say, you see us, we see you. Andrew Armstrong is a pianist with an international career 
having performed from a large repertory of 35 concertos at all the major U.S. concert halls and prestigious venues across Europe. He is also the creative director of the CMA Chamber Music on Main. You can learn more about this critically acclaimed concert series on our website, columbiamuseum.org. After the break, Andy is back with a special guest. Most of the time when we practice, it's trying things that don't work. (laughs) Well said. What happens if I do this? Okay, I'm not going to do that when anyone else is listening. Mm -hmm. James Ennis, when we return. Hey, y'all. You know who it is. Just thought you might like to know there's more coming soon. You know. More? What? You keep acting like you don't know what I mean. Come on. I'm talking about more exhibitions, more classes, more programs, more concerts, more tours, more art, more podcasts. There's always more at the CMA. See? More. And members get even more than that. More mission, more parties, more benefits than I can name in this ad. In fact, it might be easier if you just go see for yourself. Because if I have to list how much more there is, we'll be here all day. You can see more for yourself on our website, www.columbiamuseum.org. And now, for more of the show. Well, this is Andy Armstrong coming back after the break, and I've got a new guest in the studio, James Ennis. Hey, Andy. Good to be here. James is my good friend and just by chance, one of the world's very greatest violinists. He plays a a Stradivarius violin from the the golden period, and he played with us uh, on our series at the Columbia Museum. He played uh, one of the most famous violin sonatas ever written. The Violin Sonata by César Franck from 1886, and it was some of the most intimate playing you can imagine ever hearing on the violin, as well as two little miniatures by Eric Korngold from 1920, just again showing the power of chamber music and the power of just how intimate and full-hearted an expression can be. Coming up in May, James is returning to our series wearing a different hat. Uh, he'll be coming with his string quartet, two violins, viola, and cello. And I'd be remiss if I didn't say that uh, James spends most of his year wearing a very, very different hat as a concerto soloist, standing in front of orchestras and playing fiendishly difficult and exciting violin parts with orchestra. So James has all these different hats that he wears, and they're, and they're artistically different critters. And I thought that'd be a good kickoff point, James, to ask you to talk a little bit about the different fulfillments you get, the different challenges, playing that intimate violin repertoire with me this uh, past January, and the, the quartet repertoire coming up, and your concerto life. It is an interesting balance to find in one's career, and, and I'm, I'm very fortunate to have the opportunities to do these different things that I love. Like I will, in every season, I'll, as you say, be playing quite a bit of concerto work because that's really kind of the heart of my market, I would say, as a violin soloist. But um, the recital work, uh, which is to say the violin and piano duo stuff that you and I have done so much of for so many years now, that's a huge part of my musical life. Uh, My beloved quartet that, as you mentioned, will be coming here soon. 
That's also very important to me. I am, as you know, the artistic director of the Seattle Chamber Music Society, where we have two yearly festivals as well as events throughout the season. So that chamber music festival can be anything from solo through groups of 10, 12 players. And then the solo violin repertoire, which is not as vast as the solo piano repertoire, but still it's incredibly rewarding. So all these things, I think that in a way they exercise different violinistic muscles, so to speak. And, and also they, you know, they, they cover slightly different musical ground. And I feel like being able to spend time in each of these areas makes me better at the others. When I perform with the quartet, that makes my concerto playing better and vice versa. I would think it was a supreme compliment. A friend of mine who had never attended a, a concerto performance of yours yet had heard you with your quartet. And of course, in a quartet, you sitting in the first violin position, you do need to lead many things. But with you know the, the top flight players in your quartet, you know there's so much teamwork, there's so much blending. And my friend observed, I know James has an international career as a soloist. I just hadn't quite comprehended what it would be like yet to be at a concerto performance because it was like he allowed his star to shine in a completely different way. I think there's a sense in concerto playing that sometimes you blend with the orchestra, sometimes you're a team player, and sometimes there's just no choice. The way the music is written, like the part itself has to be kind of the beacon. Don't sure, you yeah. And you know, I think that in quartet playing, uh, one of the most, uh, I suppose, challenging yet rewarding facets of it is that the role of the parts changes depending on how the composer felt they needed to, to work out that internal balance. So sometimes, you know, you play the first violin part in a quartet, and sometimes you are very much part of a, of a small ensemble of equal voices. And then there are some quartets where it's like, oh, no, no, this is <laughs> like a violin concerto, or there will be a passage. You know, you all, the, that is always uh, interesting when you're playing a quartet where it might be, you know, you were using the, the term earlier that we so often speak of in chamber music, the, the intimacy. But then sometimes out of nowhere, the first violin will have this thing where then it becomes a very extroverted role. The violin sort of takes over and, you know, that kind of playing that almost pushes someone back in their chair. So mm. this, I think, relates very much to what I was just saying about how having the opportunities to do all these different types of playing, it is incredibly valuable for becoming a well-rounded violinist because each one of these career areas really requires you to be able to do all of them just mm. in different combinations, right? right? And I'm sure it's the same for you, you know, as a pianist. When you play a piano quintet, you're not a different person than when you play a piano concerto or when you play a solo piano recital. There just might be sort of a different balance of, uh, of your artistic makeup. You know, it's yeah. sort of like you can make a lot of different recipes with the same ingredients if you change the amounts of each. Right. And if one ensemble that, that you're playing with calls forth a certain color from you more than the others, well, great. It's like an artist. You've expanded your palette. You know, you, right. you know, you're coming to each new canvas with the greatest number of powerful colors at your disposal. Yeah. And of course, that's the wonderful thing about the experience of playing concerts. You might play a string trio concert. And in that circumstance, with those players and whatever that repertoire may be, 
maybe there's something you've never done before. Maybe there's something you've never tried before, and that that becomes part of your arsenal. And it's not the sort of thing where you, you say, oh, well, if I ever play this piece again with exactly these people in exactly this place, then I'll do that. It's like, no, that just becomes a part of your broader palette um, that can be called upon whenever you feel the urge. <laughs> you, know, you reference trying something new, being inspired to go with something with a different group that you might not otherwise have done. It reminds me of a, a, a metaphor I always have running around in my mind, especially if someone calls me with an exceptionally gifted nine-year-old that needs to have more concerts. And the metaphor that comes into my mind is that of a soft-shell crab. A crab, in order to grow, has got to shed its armor. Hmm. And it can't stay in that hard shell. It's got to get rid of it and grow a new one. And while it's growing the new one, it's vulnerable to attack. It doesn't have its armor. Right. And I think about a nine-year-old, you know, Wunderkind or a 12-year-old, you know, prodigy. And I, without fail, I'll say to the parents involved, you know, err on the side of care here. Because if your child starts to have a public reputation of some sort that they have to then guard or protect from, you know, bad press or bad, you know, stories about performances that didn't go well, they're going to have to walk around armored. And they're so young. There's so much growth yet to happen. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing that fascinates me about you is you've got to perform at the highest level every time you take the stage. And yet you're simultaneously fearless about growth, about trying new things. You're able to do something of a soft shell <laughs> a crab, I'll go for it thing. I mean, I, I feel like that's why I practice. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny, but... I, so, that, so you do practice. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize. Uh, it, it's funny when, when we, as, as musicians, you know, we talk about practice. When you're, when you're a professional musician, you practice. And it's one of those things I, I've only on occasion been sort of reminded by friends of mine that, you know, I, like civilians, as I call them, people not in the music world, that they're like, because I had a friend, you know, asked me what, in retrospect, was a very reasonable question. You know, they say, well, what are you doing? Today? You've got a concert in a couple of days, but what are you doing now? He said, well, I'm practicing. And he's like, but don't you know how to do it? And I was like, well, yeah, I guess I do. You know, it was a, it was a funny thing uh, to think of it in those terms, but it's very important, I feel, to remain open to and inspired to try new things and to search for more. I mean, frankly, it gets easier as one's career goes along to just fall into the trap of being like, well, these are the pieces I play and this is how I play yeah, them. Yeah. Because you do, then you don't really have to challenge yeah. yourself so much. But it's so important to challenge yourself. Am I really making the most of this opportunity? You know, to play this piece, yeah. to share this message, am I really doing everything I can to convince other people of the value of this thing that means so much to me? That's our job. And of course, there are, and I think maybe more what you were specifically talking about is that idea of sort of living in the moment musically. And I think that there is a certain amount of that. But, you know, I think of musical interpretations, and we may have talked about this in private in the past, but I've been thinking in these terms quite a bit recently that, I mean, we are, we're storytellers, right? And if you tell a story, and I'm talking about it like in, in a very literal sense, if you have a story to tell to a bunch of people, you're not going to be a very good storyteller if you don't know how the story ends. <laughs> <laughs> and you're not going to be a very good storyteller if you don't really know how it works in the middle. Like mm -hmm. we've all had 
people, you know, try to tell us a joke and it's like, wait, you don't remember the punchline? Yeah, yeah. You don't really remember what happens in the joke. Like, yeah. this is not working. Yeah. And I feel like it makes a very good soundbite for, you know, musicians always want to, uh, they always want to come across as these incredibly creative people, right? So people are like, oh, I, you know, I like to just reinvent it like new every time I'm on stage. And, you know, I want every performance to be different from the other because every day is different than the other. And it's like, well, you know, I think that these people are kind of lying. <laughs> because <laughs> the fact is that what we're doing is trying to convey an artistic message that is something of great meaning and, or can be something of great meaning, something that can actually in a sometimes a fairly undefined way, but something that can have a, a profound influence on the lives of the people in your audience. That's why they go. That's why they pay money to come hear us do our thing. And so I feel like getting back to this idea of storytelling as you know, I like to tell jokes, <laughs> most of which I could not tell on the air. <laughs> I love but, that joke. Um, like, I'm trying know, to think of one that you could tell on the air. <laughs> you tell there a, might be a viola joke in there that you could do. You tell a joke, and the more you tell it, you realize what works in terms of timing mm -hmm. and what works in certain circumstances, what works with certain target audiences. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if you're a good joke teller, you don't tell that joke the same way every time because mm -hmm. different people are going to respond in different ways in yeah. different circumstances. And so I think as a musician, when we're there telling that story, ideally one gets to a point instrumentally where you were able to be flexible enough to adapt mm -hmm. the telling of that story to a specific situation. And that does not mean, and I mean, to me, it's just wild when I hear some musicians claim that, you know, every time I play a piece, I just, I, I want to feel differently about it. And it's like, well, that sounds like you don't actually know how this story goes. <laughs> like, you, I want to know exactly what I'm trying to convey. Exactly. Like, yeah. I, if I have questions about something interpretively, I don't think I'm ready to play it. But I and, love the point you've made about nobody ever says that Van Gogh painting that they're showing at the museum. It used to be great, but you know it needs to be reinvented. Like you know, <laughs> show it to me in a in a refreshing light. It's like people deserve to just go see Van Gogh's sunflowers. And similarly, yeah. the Mendelssohn Concerto. How much reinventing does it need when it's just a great work of art when it's played with passion and well, integrity? And it's one of those things when when it comes to sort of uh, more known pieces of music and when it comes to knowledgeable audiences, you know, audiences that might come to a program where they're familiar with all the pieces that are on it. As a performer, I think you just have to recognize that you have no idea their frame of reference going into it. I mean, mm -hmm. most people, when it comes to, you know, and this isn't just our so-called, you know, art music or classical music, think about like a cover band. <laughs> if you go in to hear a cover band do some like Beach Boy song, yeah. you have that recording of the Beach Boys in your ears. And if they are one tick faster or one <laughs> tick slower. It's true. You know, it, it's so, a great so it's funny. Like I, I one time played the Mendelssohn Concerto. You talk about the Mendelssohn Concerto. And I may have told you this story at one point. It was an interesting performance where it was, it was a nice performance. I enjoyed it. And I played it the way I felt it needed to be, the way that piece speaks to me. And after the concert, there was a post-concert chat. And it was one of those things where we, we started the chat and people were still very much filtering in and coming in as we were talking. And the very first question 
there was a man who he said, well, I'd like to ask you about your interpretation of the Mendelssohn Concerto because, you know, the way you approached the piece was very classical in style, you know, almost looking backwards towards, you know, the music of Mozart. And I was wondering how it was that you came to decide to interpret Mendelssohn in that way. And I sort of paused and I, and I thought to myself, how am I going to answer this? And I said, well, I didn't really make a decision to approach it in that way. You know, I, I play the piece the way it speaks to me and the way that I would like to share it with other people. You know, I can only play it in the way that I think it needs to be. And if you see it, my interpretation in a certain light, you know, and again, I was trying to sort of be careful with how I worded this, but basically I said, I think that probably says more about your preconceptions and your frame of mind and your range of experience with the piece. If, if, if you want to amuse yourself, you know, you can go to any sort of major newspaper or, or, you know, classical music review magazine or recording review magazine. And if you kind of read between the lines of most music criticism, it mostly falls into the category of Interesting, this person played it faster than the recording I grew up with. And interesting, this person played it slower than the recording I grew up with. Yeah. Or that was louder than the last recording I heard. You know, yeah. things like this because we can't escape and that's okay. Yeah. And yeah. That, that, that's sort of, that's the fun of it. I mean, if a piece only works in one way, it's maybe not a great piece. Mm -hmm. But as a performer, I, I think that a performer has to go on stage being like, yeah, the way that I am presenting the big picture, and like I say, not all the little details, because that's part of the art of storytelling. Those change depending on who you're talking to, where you are, how the evening's going. But in terms of the big arc of that story, I think that's a funny thing. I feel as a musician that you have to, at the same time, have the humility to understand that all sorts of great minds, sometimes for centuries, have had ideas of what this music says that are sometimes very different and that's beautiful but i'm the one who really gets it and i'm going to tell you exactly how it works <laughs> because you know if you if you're not convinced yourself how are you going yeah, to convince yeah, anyone else right. you know and then there's nothing worse than going to a performance where you feel like the mm -hmm. person doesn't know what they're trying to say i call that playing with question marks floating over <laughs> yes, your head you know? exactly let me throw two quick thoughts at you to get just any any responses you have Number one, you referenced, you know, when you're telling a joke, you're reading your audience and you tell the joke to that audience. Similarly, when we play a concert, I think a lot of audience members don't realize how strong those ties are between mm -hmm. us and them. When we come to a, an intense silence in the piece and in one town, there's electric silence out there. And in another town, there are feet shuffling and programs rustling. We read those audience differently. That first audience, we feel more inspired and we feel, oh my gosh, we're all together. And so they're communicating with us in that way. Sometimes we'll finish up really intense movement. And sometimes you ever feel like you could hear that they're about to clap and they know they're not supposed to and they almost can't <laughs> contain themselves. It's so, it's so fun and electrifying. So one thing is I, I, I don't know that they always know how much the performance is put on by all of us in the room together. That whole experience, that shared experience, the energy in the room is powerful and integral to the whole experience. And the other thing I wish that I could communicate to all of our audiences is even when we talk about the right way to play a piece, you know, the, the way we believe it goes, just how much room there is for different interpretation. Kind of a, as a counterexample to something you were saying, I've had pieces that I took care to study from the score without having listened to recordings of other people. 
and I take care to read the score as carefully as I can, and I find inner voices that I'm excited about. And, you know, you're reading tempo markings like the speed of this movement should be lively. <laughs> the speed of this movement should be moderate. You know, and well, that's very subjective. What is moderate? What is lively? And I've put together interpretations where I feel like I'm really wedded to this composer in their spirit, getting everything I can. And someone will come up and say, wow, that was radical. I've never heard anyone read it that way. Well, it's fascinating. The, the system of musical notation is quite ingenious, yet it is still incredibly imprecise <laughs> just by its nature. If you could use notation to accurately notate music, then you wouldn't actually need the music, would you? So we have all these different great composers in our world of our music, you know, the composers over the course of several centuries that are all basically using the same tools, but in different ways because the tools by their very nature can't be as specific as we kind of wish they were. You know, as interpreters, I think it, it, we become detectives, right? And, and I think that part of getting to the heart of what a composer means is understanding that composer in a more complete way, you know, in terms of the way they used notation. Some of these, you know, some of these funny little symbols that we have in, in music to Beethoven that might have meant something very different than it did to Shostakovich. But ultimately, all they are is approximations of impossible to articulate emotion. So they're clues. And yeah, you take that leap of faith. You know, some composers are incredibly specific and I think incredibly accurate with their notation. Think of composers like Maurice Ravel or Béla mm. Bartók, you know, that are meticulous with exactly what they want. And then there are other composers like Joseph Haydn. I think sometimes it's almost like a joke. He gives you so little information. <laughs> and then out of nowhere, there'll be something really specific. You're like, huh. And it really becomes sort of like really trying to figure out a bit of a puzzle. And then there are other composers that frankly may not be the most gifted at notating their music, but maybe they came up with a truly gorgeous idea, a really beautiful piece. Mm. And maybe that piece needs a little bit more interpretive help, so mm. to speak. And, and I don't think musicians should be afraid of that. You know, I think that for myself, if there's a piece by, say, Brahms or Beethoven or Mozart, I'm never going to take a look at that and say, well, it says this should be fast and loud, but you know what? I think he was wrong. I'm just going to play it so <laughs> slowly and softly. Like that to me means I don't get it. Yeah. I, I shouldn't be playing that because I don't understand it. But on the other hand, there might be another composer where I feel more confident to be like, you know what? I think I see what you're getting at here and I think I can help. I remember Garrick Olson giving a master class and it was on Chopin and, and he talked about how with Beethoven, if you really know how to read Beethoven, and you just do what's on the page to the best of your ability, it will be a fairly good and convincing performance mm -hmm. for the audience just because of the mastery of the craft that, of his writing. And he, and he said, with Chopin, you've got to help. You've, it, it's great music. It's truly great music, but there has to be a fantasy 
at the wheel at the yeah. piano, you know, thinking. Oh, and we, we talked about, I remember we had this conversation not long ago. We were talking about this famous Chopin Nocturne where there are two copies of the autograph and one of them ends in a major key and the other ends in a minor <laughs> key. And it's like, yeah, one gets the sense that the music really took on a life of its own as mm. he played it and it needs to be interpreted in such a manner. So here's, here's my last question for you, if you're willing. You're a husband to your beautiful wife, Kate, and your two beautiful children. Uh, you're watching them grow up and you're visualizing their future. And, you know, you, you're a, a man of the community, as it were. How wide are you willing to open the lens, the aperture, and talk about what your life in music means to you in your life on the planet and your, your life in society and your idea about the future and your kids and all of that? Well, that's obviously a, a big question. I think that you take a look at the history of life as we know it, you know, for all living creatures. It's like 99.99999% of the experience of life has been eat, reproduce, die. <laughs> There's nothing really more to it. And it's very easy, I think, to become shut off from things that make us feel a little bit more alive, a little bit more excited to be alive, a little bit more grateful to be alive. And I feel like if a person can experience art, and whether that is producing or you know, consuming, experiencing in that sense, I think that that is very importantly tied in to the human experience. It gives us a reason, you know, and, and, and I think for me, it fills me with gratitude. Isn't it funny how that gratitude is more easily accessible every year that we get older? It's actively on the front of my brain all the time these days. Uh -huh. Whereas when in my 20s and 30s, it was kind of wedged back there behind insecurities about stuff I wanted to achieve and wasn't achieving and to do, to do, to do. And hmm. the gratitude seems so much more accessible to me now. Is that not your experience? I'm not sure. That's an interesting, it's an interesting question that, that deserves a th more thoughtful response than I could give you right away. I believe that maybe that sense of gratitude towards the beauties of life, I think maybe it's something that we recognize more as we get older, but I'm not sure that I would say that it's something that becomes stronger. In a way, I think that it's something that becomes perhaps at a certain stage of life somewhat forgotten or somewhat taken for granted. But you know, you think of, you know, with a baby, for example, you know, a baby's reaction to and and you know, this is not always high art, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> something that is art, something artistic. And to see the reaction is joy. You know, the reaction is joy or somehow an expanding of their world, of their consciousness. And I think there is a gratitude there. Like, you know, what, what happens when a little kid experiences something that could even loosely be defined as art, which they appreciate, whether that is a food that has been artistically made to taste good to them or whether it's a, a little children's book or a little painting or a piece of music that they like, no matter how simplistic it is. I, I mean, I'm taking a very wide view of art here, but what is their reaction so often? 
they smile and they clap their hands. Mm. Now, clapping your hands, that is pretty much the universal sign of gratitude, <laughs> yeah, yes? Yeah, So yeah. I think that gratitude is always there. And I think that, yeah, those of us that are lucky enough to live the kind of privileged lives where we just kind of have it as 20-year-olds, sometimes, yeah, sometimes we forget that gratitude, but I think it's a part of who we are. And I think that that is the impulse of why people want to be around it because it makes them feel grateful to be alive. Grammy Award winner James Ennis is one of the most sought after violinists on the international stage. Ennis is a favorite guest of many of the world's most respected conductors, playing with some of the most prestigious orchestras, including the Boston and Vienna Symphony Orchestras, the New York and Czech Philharmonic Orchestras, and many others. But Ennis's long partnership with Andrew Armstrong has resulted in numerous recordings and performances around the world. We are excited to welcome his return to the CMA stage with the Ennis String Quartet right here at the Columbia Museum of Art on May 2nd. So I have been lucky enough in my career here at the museum to be part of this staff through the whole of Chamber Music on Main and its number of iterations. It has been one of those places where you get to watch the community form around this particular art form of chamber music, this intimate presentation of very emotional music where you get to ride the waves of despair or joy and happiness. And I feel like that's one of the best advantages and perks that I've been able to have as a staff is to watch the community of supporters, to watch new audience members come in, to watch the people who give to this museum to make sure that this chamber comes back to us. And then to get to know Andy and the amazing players that he brings here over and over again every year. And it creates community. In our world of the arts, one of the conversations is really around placemaking. How do you create place? And a place is defined not necessarily by walls. It is defined by people. Ultimately, the arts is a human experience. And if people can come to this museum and experience joy in the arts, in music, in performance, getting to know artists and enjoying that together, I really feel like we've done our job here at the Columbia Museum of Art. You've been listening to Binder, a production of the Columbia Museum of Art. Today's episode was hosted by me, Joelle Ryan Cook. Production and editing by Drew Barron. For more information about CMA exhibitions and programs, visit our website, columbiamuseum.org.